What's going on, Ninja Nerds? It's a new week, and that means a new podcast episode. Today, we're going to be talking about acute respiratory distress syndrome, also known as ARDS. And we're going to be moving through this pretty quickly, but we're going to make sure that it's very thorough. Again, guys, before we get started, we're going through our our own notes on our website, ninjanerd.org. Sign up, please, and uh, get a membership. You can get illustrations, notes, anything you need to really help you master medicine. But let's just get right into it. Zach, you feeling all right? Yes, sir. Let's get talking about that good old ARDS. All righty. Sounds awesome. So we're going to start with the overview, a little bit of the definition defining what ARDS is, and then of course getting into causes. So let's go ahead and get right into it. Yeah. So when we talk about ARDS, the basic concept, whenever you're looking at the definition of it is it's again, acute respiratory distress syndrome, and it's basically a manifestation of a severe acute lung injury. And the best way we describe this acute lung injury is that there is diffuse damage to multiple alveolar capillary interface. And whenever you damage a lot of that alveolar capillary interface, that's where a lot of your gas exchange process is occurring. So when you knock that out, you can lead to significant hypoxemia and lots of like fluid that can accumulate within the lungs. That's not due to a heart problem. It's not a cardiogenic source of fluid or pulmonary edema. So that's the basic definition. ARDS, acute lung injury due to diffuse alveolar capillary interface damage that leads to significant hypoxemia and also coincidental pulmonary edema that is not cardiogenic an origin. Now, when we talk about what causes this diffuse alveolar damage, there are so many different things that we could go over and it could be direct. It could be indirect, if you will. So let's talk first about the direct causes that cause direct diffuse alveolar damage or lung injury. And then after that, we'll talk about the indirect to give you just the list of the direct lung injuries that I want you to remember the most common one that you're likely going to see as a patient's driver for ARDS as a direct lung injury is pneumonia by far. After that, aspiration pneumonia, lung contusions, near drowning events, and then toxic inhalation. So let's talk first about the pneumonia cause. When we talk about pneumonia, there's many different pathogens that can lead to this. Obviously, your community-acquired pathogens such as streptococcus pneumonia, your more of your nasty ones that you can see in hospital-acquired situations like Staphylococcus aureus, Pseudomonas aeruginosa. Don't forget about that pneumocystic gerevici and like your HIV individuals. And you know what's a big one now, Rob? COVID. Of course it is. Yeah. Yeah. Good old COVID. It's that yeah. SARS-CoV-2. So don't forget that. That is a huge one that, that I personally see a lot in the ICU. So that's going to be the big pneumonia etiological factors. Okay. So don't forget your strep pneumonia for your community acquired, your MRSA for your hospital acquired, your pseudomonas for hospital acquired, your pneumocystic gerevici pneumonia and HIV, and then that good old SARS-CoV-2 and those who are not vaccinated or older, greater than 65 with a lot of comorbidities. All right. So that's the big thing there. The next one is your aspiration pneumonia. So this is a patient who aspirate a lot of gastric contents. And whenever you aspirate gastric contents, think about what you're actually aspirating. First off, it's acidic material. That's going to cause injury to the actual like high respiratory tract lining, which are also aspirating bacteria, gram-negative bacteria from your GI tract, anaerobic bacteria from your GI tract, and that's going to cause this massive amount of injury to the actual lung parenchyma. The other one is lung contusions. Just whenever you have some type of traumatic event, I don't know, you get punched in the chest by a mule and you cause like a massive injury to the actual lung parenchyma, that's good enough to do it as well. One more time, Zach, though. You get get punched in the... Yeah, yeah, you get kicked in the chest by a mule. Uh, Okay. (laughs) All right. All right. Hey, maybe you're working on a farm. I'm not sure what you're doing. Yeah, I guess, yeah, there's... uh, I'm not sure how you'll end up uh, with that kind of event, but it's a possibility. That'd be, that'd be a rough day. <laughs> the other thing is near drowning. These are kind of those crazy ones. Like if you drown in like seawater, the seawater is really hypertonic. 
And so what it's designed to do is kind of suck fluid into the actual uh, alveoli from the capillaries and it causes like a pulmonary edema, therefore causing like an inefficient gas exchange because oxygen has got to move from the alveoli into the blood and it's got to move through a thick membrane or you're drowning in like fresh water. And so this would be like it's a hypotonic solution in the lungs and that's going to kind of like wash out all your surfactant. And so now you have less of your surfactant there that's designed to be able to reduce surface tension. So if you lose that, your surface tension goes up and the alveoli collapse pretty hard. So that's the big things for that one. The other things for your direct lung injuries would be the toxic smoke inhalation. So I think about like uh, if you have some type of like irritants or gases that you're actually within like a, a, a big fire, those things can definitely cause direct injury to the lung tissue. So that would be the big things for your direct lung injuries. But I put most of the emphasis on pneumonia. The indirect ones, there's a couple here. So sepsis, pancreatitis, uh, long bone fractures that cause like fat emboli, uh, trolleys, like tr- transfusion associated lung injuries, and then certain drugs, which we don't know how to understand the mechanism of how they actually do that, but we'll talk about it a little bit. But I say the best one and most common one to remember here for the indirect causes is sepsis. So again, if you want to remember the most common for direct, pneumonia, most common for indirect, you got to remember sepsis. So how does sepsis actually do this? It's a crazy thing. And this is another reason we would see a lot of ARDS in my ICU is you have a massive inflammatory reaction, a lot of immunogenic reactions that are occurring. And what happens is let's say that you're getting infected by some pathogens within your systemic circulation and it's activating your immune system. Your macrophages are releasing massive amounts of cytokines. The big ones interleukin-1, interleukin-6, TNF-alpha, they basically cause your capillaries in your alveolar area to become super leaky. They leak a lot of fluid out into the interstitial spaces and into the alveoli. And then also, a lot of the immune system cells and inflammatory materials and bacteria actually can extravasate out of the actual capillaries with near the alveoli and cause direct damage to the alveolar capillary tissue. And so that's a really, really big one. So please don't forget this. Probably the most common cause of ours in general is going to be sepsis. The other thing is going to be pancreatitis. It's an interesting one, especially for your boards. Uh, basically, whenever you have pancreatitis, it's like a, a massive inflammatory, like a sterile, massive sterile inflammatory inflammation of the abdomen, particularly with around the pancreas. And you release a massive amount of cytokines, massive amount of pancreatic enzymes that can get into the bloodstream. And they, again, can cause the same thing to sepsis, cause a lot of vasodilation, increased capillary permeability, destroy the endothelial lining of the capillary, and even cause destruction of the alveolar uh, epithelium. And that can cause a lot of edema, uh, particularly within the interstitium and in the pulmonary, uh, uh, particularly in the interstitium and in the alveoli. And that will cause a lot of inflammation and affect your gas exchange, leading to hypoxemia. The other one is multiple long bone fractures. So if you have a good long bone fracture, you're hitting that medullary cavity and just leaking out tons of fat globules. Those fat globules can actually get like metabolized in something called oleic acid. And this causes a lot of like inflammatory mediators that actually cause direct damage directly to the capillary and the alveolar interface. And again, leading to that inflammation, fluid leakage, causing interstitial and alveolar edema. Boom, you lead to that intense hypoxemia there. So that's the big ones for that one. The other one I want you to remember is trolley. I've actually seen this once. It's pretty interesting. So basically, whenever somebody's getting like a kind of a transfusion, particularly like fresh frozen plasma or cryoprecipitate, they may contain the donor antibodies and phospholipids. And they've been shown to be able to cause these neutrophils to kind of like sequester in the capillaries of the alveolar capillary area to become activated. And they release cytokines, proteases, reactive oxygen species, and they cause damage to the capillary, capillary alveolar interface, leading to alveolar interstitial edema and subsequent high hypoxemia. The last one is drugs. So we actually don't know how the heck these things do it. It must just be like a direct effect of the actual drugs where cocaine, this is a big one, opioids, aspirin toxicity, they may cause direct injury to the actual lung inch. Uh, I'm sorry, indirect injury to the lung tissue. We just don't know how. And it causes a massive kind of alveolar and capillary kind of like uh, destruction leading to again, interstitial and uh, alveolar edema leading to hypoxemia. But that's the big things for the causes of uh, ARDS, Rob. 
And that makes sense to me because obviously, you know, working in the ICU, Zach, you see a ton of sepsis, right? And then a lot of the times this is really the result. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So sepsis is definitely going to be the big one. Usually when a patient is septic, they have just like multi-system organ dysfunction. And this just happens to be one of those organs that is the first one to get hit typically um, in those patients who have pretty bad sepsis. And then obviously I see a lot of pneumonia because patients usually aspirate um, and or they're, you know, on a ventilator and they're exposed to some nasty multi-drug resistant bacteria in the hospital, unfortunately. And they get a nasty pneumonia that unfortunately we don't catch fast enough and they end up with a pretty bad ARDS. And like you said, of course, now it's, it's becoming much more prevalent with COVID. You have have so much more uh, because of COVID-19 uh, and it's just only adding to your, your patient. Population. Oh my gosh. Yeah. And that's one of the things that I, I, I've unfortunately seen a lot of is that unfortunately patients who come to my ICU, neuro ICU who have, have COVID-19, there has been some, a lot of like particular patients that I've seen who have at like posterior circulation strokes. So it produces this hypercoagulable state, which predisposes them to a stroke. And then they come in, they have this massive stroke, maybe of their cerebellar area or their brainstem. And then on top of that, they have a nasty ARDS. And usually one of the things that we'll talk about whenever a patient has super bad ARDS is they're super hypoxemic. They're at the point of near death. You have to decide what's more important, maintaining a good neuro exam because of their stroke, or do you have to just go ahead and paralyze them and then you lose your entire neuro exam? So it becomes very tough sometimes. It seems like an, an impossible scenario. Oh, yeah. But again, that's just what just that's the position you're put in and you, and you have to do what's right. Yeah, that. exactly. It's a tough one. Uh, but OK, awesome. Interesting causes. Really cool uh, over overview, really. So next thing we're going to get into is pathophysiology. Uh, we're going to get really into it and talk about some clinical features, signs and symptoms of ARDS. Yeah. So when we have a patient who has ARDS, the basic concept here is when you look at the actual alveolar like um, epithelial tissue, it's consisting of your type one and your type two pneumocytes. And your type one pneumocytes are the, basically the ones that are allowing for gas exchange or the simple squamous ones. Your type two are the cuboidal ones. Those are the ones that make surfactant. And so basically what happens is whether it's a direct injury from, again, pneumonia, aspirated material, um, some type of contusion, so direct injury, near drowning incidents, toxic inhalation, or indirect from massive inflammatory type types of events that cause indirect damage to it. You damage these cells, the type one and type two pneumocytes. So think about it. You damage the type one pneumocytes, you can't perform gas exchange. If you can't perform gas exchange, you can't put oxygen from the alveoli into the blood and therefore you end up with hypoxemia. The other thing is type two pneumocytes get damaged. So type two pneumocytes are responsible for being able to make surfactant. Surfactant is designed to be able to kind of coat the alveolar uh, area to keep the surface tension, the collapsing pressure of the alveoli reduced. If you get rid of surfactant, now your alveoli want to collapse. And if they collapse, imagine having to work to inflate those alveoli. If you have a bunch of alveoli that are collapsed, you have to put a lot of work and effort into being able to reinflate those alveoli. And that can cause a lot of respiratory distress, significant amounts, my friends. So those are the big things. So the whole concept here is that you have a lot of these types of direct or indirect injuries that are causing a lot of immune system cells and a lot of inflammatory cytokines to come to the alveolar capillary interface therefore leading to direct injury to the actual type 1, type 2 pneumocytes. On top of that, they're also causing the capillaries to become super leaky. So when these capillaries become super leaky, you have lots of fluid that leaks out of the actual um, capillaries, the pulmonary capillaries, into the interstitial spaces and then into the alveoli. 
So then because of that, you end up with a lot of like edema, some a fluid that actually accumulates within the interstitial spaces, so some pulmonary edema. And then on top of that, you end up with fluid that actually can accumulate in the alveoli itself, causing some alveolar edema. What happens with this is that whenever you have all this fluid, imagine just waterlogging your alveoli. The oxygen has to be able to travel a super far distance going from your alveoli into the blood now. That makes the distance that it has to travel. On top of that, the alveoli is collapsed because of less surfactant and your type 1 cells, which are supposed to play a role in gas exchange, those are also destroyed. You're going to end up with significant hypoxemia, low oxygen within the blood. And that's a problematic issue. And so one of the things that you can see with these patients is you put on that pulse ox, and you see a low SpO2. The other thing that you could see is that whenever a patient is hypoxemic, they develop compensatory mechanisms, such as trying to stimulate their sympathetic nervous system to drive up their breathing rate. So they try to breathe faster to pull in more oxygen. So they're tachypnic, they're short of breath, they're utilizing a lot of muscles to be able to breathe, utilizing their sternocleidomastoid, their scalenes, they're flaring their nares, they're using their abdomen. And so you see a lot of accessory muscle use with this. On top of that, they also try to beat their heart rate faster to push more blood to their alveoli and the thoughts that if I get more blood to the alveoli, I can get more oxygen, but that doesn't always actually work out for in their favor. So that's the things that can happen next. So we got destruction of the type one, type two pneumocytes. We got a lot of fluid that accumulates in the interstitial spaces and in the alveoli leads to significant hypoxemia. Then what else can start happening on top of that? Imagine in this alveoli, I got dead cells. I got fluid. I got proteins. And then on top of that, I'm even going to start having a lot of like red blood cells that can actually start accumulating in this area because of how leaky they are. As this starts accumulating, you get this nasty kind of like highland membrane type of formation. And this really alters the gas exchange process even more. And that's when you start having some issues here. So what are some other things I think would be important to think about here, Rob, is not just looking at the patient, but listening to the patient. Put your stethoscope on the chest and listen. You're going to hear a lot of evidence of fluid. So you may hear things like rails or crackles. You may hear a lot of ronchi due to kind of like a lot of secretions and fluid and alveolar exudate getting stuck within those alveoli and in the bronchioles. And so that's some of the things that I definitely think you'll see here. I think as we get towards the point where this is like usually the most significant point, and ARDS afterwards, if the patient um, tends to recover, um, they may actually recover in a way where there's some resolution and repair of some of those type one, type two pneumocytes, re-completely endothelialization of the pulmonary capillaries, removal of some of the pulmonary capillary fluid. All of those things can happen. The worst case scenario is if you damage so much epithelial tissue and you don't actually regenerate it and a lot of fibroblasts come to the area and lay down a lot of fibrous tissue, you could potentially cause a lot of fibrosis. And then unfortunately, uh, a lot of like chronic lung injury, like some interstitial lung disease that you can see or restrictive lung disease due to significant and diffuse damage to multiple alveoli. So those are some of the big, big, nasty kind of pathophysiological kinds of things that we can see that explain the complications such as hypoxemia, work of breathing, tachypnea, dyspnea, crackles, rails, uh, ronchi, and tachycardia as well. And so those are the big things. I, ho I hope that made sense, Rob. That's awesome. And, and it really puts in perspective the amount of recovery these patients have to overcome. It's, it's not just, you know, getting stable in, in, in the, maybe in the ICU, but they have such a long recovery ahead of them because you, like you said, you might have restrictive lung disease then. Yeah, exactly. That's, just, there's so much that goes into it. So it's, it's, 
Yeah, and you see that with the long haulers, like the COVID long haulers, exactly. a lot of those patients exactly. who, yeah. who unfortunately they, they do survive and they, you know, they're able to make it through COVID, but unfortunately the amount of damage that was been occurred, you know, to the actual alveolar epithelium, uh, they, they end up not being able to completely recover and regenerate all that tissue and they end up with just so much scar tissue. Crazy, very, very crazy, but again, interesting as well. So uh, great explanation there. Uh, next thing we're moving into here now is the diagnosis. So how is this diagnosed? And then afterwards, of course, we'll get into treatment a little bit later. So ARDS can actually be somewhat difficult to diagnose. There was um, a study that came up with a hopefully an easier way to remember it called the Berlin Criteria. Um, unfortunately, though, sometimes it's not always as clear cut as this you know, criteria seems to be. But the first thing that you look for in the Berlin criteria, there's four components to this criteria. The first thing is the patient has to have evidence of acute respiratory failure within a week, within one week of a known predisposing factor. So those are all those causes. Have, have they had an, a pneumonia? Have they had sepsis? Have they aspirated? Do they have pancreatitis, lung contusion, long bone fractures, near drowning, trolley, toxic smoke inhalation, or very specific drug exposure that we know causes this within a week of this them developing respiratory failure, hypoxemia, tachypnea, muscle use, um, uh, you know, tachycardia, lot crackles, rails, all of the evidence of potential respiratory failure within a week. So that's important. So if you take, for example, a patient in the most common cause is sepsis. Look for their source of sepsis. Let's say that you diagnosed, oh, the patient had a, a pyelonephritis and they, they ended up with a nasty pylo and it leaked into their actual bloodstream, caused a massive uroseptic event, and then they ended up with ARDS. Okay, then you know, or they have a massive endocarditis. It, it, you know, the whole point is you understand where their actual source came from. So if you diagnose the patient who's actually had sepsis due to an underlying cause, you find that via, from a UTI urinalysis. If it was actually from a pneumonia, from a sputum culture from the specific bacteria, if it was because of an endovascular infection, a blood culture. And so we're looking for evidence of those actual causes there particularly, but it has to be a week, one week within the actual um, initial kind of event of respiratory failure. The second thing is you have to have bilateral opacities. And this is the thing that sometimes tough. So whenever you say that you have bilateral opacities or you have this whiteout that appears on the chest X-ray or CT or lung ultrasound, it's kind of sometimes a little bit difficult because when we talk about this, it looks like pulmonary edema. And you're like, okay, is this pulmonary edema due to ARDS or is this pulmonary edema due to volume overload? Is it due to a cardiogenic source like they have heart failure and now all the fluids backing up into the lungs? And that's somewhat difficult to be able to hash out on a patient's chest X-ray, their CT, their lung ultrasound. Uh, sometimes there's other ways that you can potentially look at this. Like generally in a patient who has like CHF, they maybe have like pleural effusions. They have cardiomegaly. You know, they got those curly B lines that kind of pointed out, but that's not always perfectly situated in these patients' chest x-ray. So it can be somewhat difficult. But again, acute respiratory failure in less than a week uh, with a known cause. Second, bilateral whiteouts on their chest x-ray. So you have to see whiteout in both of their hemithoraxes. And you can see this on chest x-ray. Usually that'd be the first thing. If you're having a difficult time and you're trying to figure out the etiology a little bit more, you could go down the road of getting a CT of the chest um, if you really need some further you know, anal analysis of their chest. Um, but a lung ultrasound is also a really good one. I love to use this at the bedside, Rob, and just smack the ultrasound on their chest and look for any like massive amounts of B-lines or consolidations and pleural effusions. Right. Yeah, pretty quick and easy too. Then yeah, it's really easy. And if you, you know, I really, I always encourage people to get used to utilizing ultrasound. But sure. I think these are the these are the big first two things that you have to know. Um, the next thing that I also say is okay. Well, 
we have a patient who's hypoxemic, right? So we have acute respiratory failure. We know their cause within less than a week. We got bilateral white on their chest x-ray. And then we know they have hypoxemia, low amounts of oxygen within inside of the bloodstream. Well, we actually have to take that a little bit further. And so the way that the Berlin criteria actually looks at it is not the amount of oxygen that's in the bloodstream. It's how much amount of oxygen they have in their bloodstream. And then on top of that, how much oxygen are we giving them that determines a true degree of respiratory failure? So for example, we use something called the PF ratio. So that's the partial pressure of arterial oxygen, and that's in millimeters of mercury, over the fraction of inspired oxygen that you're pushing into their lungs. To make this simple, let's say you get an ABG on a patient. When you get the ABG on the patient, let's pretend that their partial pressure of oxygen in the arterial blood is 100, okay? It's 100 perfect millimeters of mercury. But the amount of oxygen that you're pushing into their lungs, let's just say, um, because you, you know, you're on room air. Let's say they're on room air in that situation. That's 100 millimeters of mercury divided by the fraction of inspired oxygen at room air, 0.21. So 100 divided by 0.21 is 476. That's your normal, that's kind of like a normal PF ratio. As we get less than 300, so we kind of get in the 200 to 300 range, we consider that PF ratio to be more of a mild ARDS. And so you can take, for example, you have a patient. Now look at this. They have the same partial pressure of oxygen, 100 millimeters of mercury. But now we're putting them on OptiFlow. So we have them on an oxygen supplementation and we're pushing 40% of inspired oxygen into their lungs. Now you have to take 100 divided by the 40%, 0.4, and that gives you 250. So that's in that kind of range of 200, 300. That's that mild ARDS. The moderate is let's say that now they're intubated. Okay. They're intubated. You weren't able to support them. Now you have them intubated and their PO, let's say again, PAO2, 100 millimeters of mercury on the spot. But now the amount of oxygen that you're pushing into them is actually 60%. So now they're on the ventilator and you're pushing a hundred, I mean, you're pushing 60% of inspired oxygen to the lungs. So that's a hundred divided by 60% or 0.6. That's 166. That's in the range of moderate, which is 100 to 200 for your PF ratio. The worst case scenario for severe ARDS is if you have a PF less than 100. So now let's say, let's say that you couldn't even match a hundred because if we say a hundred and you divide that by the most amount of oxygen you can push into a person, hundred percent, that's going to be a hundred. We need less than so let's say that we have 90 millimeters of mercury of PaO2 and we divide that by 100% FiO2. I'm pushing the max amount of inspired oxygen that I can into a patient's lungs via the ventilator. If I take 90 divided by 100%, which is one, that's 90. That's severe ARDS. So if you imagined a patient who's barely maintaining an O2 uh, percentage, uh, sorry, a partial pressure of oxygen of 90 at a 100% FiO2, that is a very, very sick patient. That's scary. Yeah. And so that's a big thing to think about. So you got, again, acute respiratory failure and less than a week with a known cause, bilateral whiteout on their chest x-ray, and a PF ratio of less than 300, right? So that's, again, if you really subgroup it, mild ARDS is 200 to 300, moderate is 100 to 200, and then severe is less than 100. The last thing that helps you with the diagnosis, according to the Berlin criteria, is ruling out a cardiogenic source. This is what I was telling you, like whenever you get a chest x-ray and you see bilateral whiteout, how do I know if it's not like volume overload or a heart failure that's causing the fluid to back up into the lungs? So I got to rule out a cardiogenic source. So I can do this. There's a lot of things that you could do. You know, they say checking a BMP could determine the level of volume stress. 
I don't really find that to be a very helpful um, uh, parameter of utilizing determining non-cardiogenic versus cardiogenic. So I don't really think a BMP is very helpful, but there is some literature out there that says, that, oh, if you have a higher BMP, that means that your heart's under more like volume stress and it's stretching out more. I don't really agree with that. Echo, I think, would be the best thing to consider because you get to look at their left ventricular ejection fraction and you get to look at their diastolic function. So if they have really poor diastolic function, meaning they don't fill blood very well or their EF sucks and they can't even pump out 15% of the blood in their heart, then you know that the blood isn't going to be getting out of their heart or filling into their heart. It's going to back up into their lungs. And so that would tell me, oh, there's a chance that this could be cardiogenic pulmonary edema. Now, here's the question. What if you had a patient who had cardiogenic pulmonary edema and ARDS? Can that happen? Yes, yeah. you can have that. So it doesn't always make this perfect, beautiful separation. Sometimes you can have a patient with both. All right. The next thing is that if I didn't get an echo and I really wanted to go the, the full distance and throw a swan in this person. Oh, this poor person. <laughs> yeah, and thread the catheter into the pulmonary artery and kind of get a capillary wedge pressure. That would really be the most definitive way of being able to tell me if it's cardiogenic or not. Because if the capillary wedge pressure is low, that tells me that their left atrium and left ventricle are working fine. They're filling properly and they're contracting properly. So if it's less than 18, it tells me that it's not a cardiogenic. If it's greater than 18, it tells me that it is possibly a cardiogenic source. So those are the ways that I would go about remembering. It. And if you forget all this, don't worry. I got a mnemonic. ARDS, abnormal chest X-ray, respiratory failure within less than a week of an initial cause, a decreased PF ratio, and you should exclude CHF, even though it's not always a perfect scenario. I love it. I feel like you have a mnemonic for everything. <laughs> you got that's some, helpful. That's easy. Yeah, sometimes yeah. it's too much, man. You got to remember all this crap, and I, I can't remember everything. No, that's a very good one. ARDS, <laughs> All right. Beautiful. Thanks for that, Zach. Great explanation. Makes perfect sense, uh, but scary stuff overall. Next thing we're going to be moving into is treatment. And this should kind of uh, conclude our podcast episode. So let's let's treat this patient. Let's do what we can to help them out. Yeah. So ARDS is a it's a tough disease to treat and the mortality rate is pretty high. So if you have a patient who's got some pretty bad ARDS, you can't you shouldn't feel bad that you weren't able to potentially give them the amount of treatment that you wanted to save them. It's, it's, a, it's a nasty disease. And so I think we've gotten better with it over the years. We've got a lot of trials out there and a lot of better skills that I think intensivists have gained to become very good at treating this disease. But whenever you have a patient who has ARDS, it's the best thing to do is to determine is it mild or is it moderate to severe? That's the kind of the way I look at it. So get that PF ratio. If the PF ratio is 200 to 300, you're more in that mild category. And then what I do is I like to determine, okay, let's say they have a PF ratio of 210. That puts them in the mild category. I want to know what their hemodynamics are like. Are they hypotensive? Are they tachycardic? Are they looking like pretty nasty? Do they have a low mental status? And I don't think that they have the ability to protect their airway because of significant like hypoxemic encephalopathy. In those situations, if they're unstable, I don't waste my time trying to, you know, provide non-invasive positive pressure ventilation. You just got to intubate them. Um, if they are stable, like they don't look too bad, they're sitting there and they're eating a turkey sandwich and you know <laughs> they're just talking to you. Hey, doc, how you doing? You know, I'm good. Yeah. So I think you can consider more of like the non-invasive positive pressure ventilations. And and, and that would be kind of like your, your high flow nasal cannulas. Um, so 
I'm a big fan of this, especially for hypoxemia. So the OptiFlow, Vapotherm, you, you crank up the flow rate and you just deliver these massive volumes of oxygen into the massive volumes of air into the patient. So you can get up to 50, 60 liters. Um, and then you just kind of, you decrease their dead space. You help to be able to kind of improve their functional residual capacity. A lot of like dead space washout. It, they say it gives you a little bit of peep. I don't really know if it's that much. It might be more nasopharyngeal peep, but there's some literature that says they can give anywhere from like zero to five centimeters of water of peep. I don't know if that's true, like actual, like, you know, lower alveolar airway peep, but it, there is some kind of like studies to potentially suggest that. But I've seen that high flow nasal cannula can really like help to improve oxygenation and reduce the work of breathing in some patients, which is a pretty beneficial thing. And then the other cool thing about OptiFlow as you can kind of crank up your FiO2. So if a patient is hypoxemic, they're sitting in like the 70s and you have to turn their FiO2 up to 60% to be able to maintain an O2 sat above what your goal is, which let's say it's like 92% or whatever. If you have to kind of crank the FiO2 up, you can do that with the OptiFlow as well. Um, I would just be careful whenever you're utilizing these things, try not to push it to the point of where you're, you've maxed it out that now they're so exhausted it's going to make it difficult being able to intubate them. But, you know, keep an eye on these patients if you're going to do these non-invasive passive pressures. The other one is BiPAP. I just be very careful. BiPAP is really good because these alveoli get super atelectatic and there's, they're kind of like, again, remember that surfactant, all that fluid, all that it's kind of like collapsing the alveoli. It takes a lot of effort to be able to reinflate those. And so sometimes if a patient's not really tolerating the high flow nasal cannula and you're just trying to hold off on intubating them, you can consider something like BiPAP because it pushes a good amount of pressure into their lungs. So this, you definitely get peep. Um, so you can, you do something called use an IPAP and inspiratory positive airway pressure. And that really helps to drive a lot of air into the lungs. And then you get an EPAP. So your expi expiratory positive airway pressure. This is basically your peep. It keeps the alveoli stented open at the end of exhalation so that they don't collapse. And then you have to re inhale hail to open those alveoli up. So that's the nice thing about that. Only downside to this is I'd be careful if the patient has a massive amount of like uh, secretions and they got a, a nasty pneumonia that's brewing and you're pushing all this pressure into their lung, they're not going to be able to clear that mucus and secretions. And so you may plug them up and they may end up with this massive drop in their O2 sats and lead to a pretty good hypoxemia. So that's the only things I would say for you know, considering the non-invasive uh, positive pressure ventilation is if they're mild ARDS, hemodynamically stable, go ahead, try that. But if they suck in this sense that they're hypotensive, they're tachycardic, they're they're really not looking good, their mental status is really declining, but their PF is like 200 to 300, just go straight to intubation. Same thing, if they have a really moderate to severe ARDS, so they're in that 100 to 200 range, or they're less than 100, doesn't matter about their hemodynamic instability or not, you intubate those patients. Now, when you intubate a patient, you're doing this because you're going to try to control everything for them. So you're going to control their actual breathing process. You're going to give them a certain amount of volume, a certain amount of pressure, a certain amount of FiO2, all of those things so that their lungs can relax and that they get some time to be able to heal. And so whenever you do that, you're utilizing something called lung protective ventilation. And so one of the things, according to the ARDSNET trial that was out there, is they said that the goal should be trying to target low tidal volume, like uh, ventilation, like four to six uh, kilos uh, per K, uh, sorry, four to six cc's per kg of ideal body weight and 
It was actually one of the good indicators for like mortality is having a low tidal volume ventilation. Because one of the problems is whenever you think about tidal volume, you remember a tidal volume, guys, it's the amount of air that you breathe in and out during normal quiet breathing, right? Do your normal breathing. That's the amount of air that you're pushing in and out. In these situations, if you push a lot of air into their lungs, the amount of air that you're pushing in and out of their lungs and a, and a tidal volume in, inhalation and expiration, you can push a lot of air in and actually stretch out those alveoli a little bit too much. And that can actually cause like volume or barotrauma because you, you know what happens is is you increase the tidal volume you increase something called plateau pressures and plateau pressures are basically a measure of badness so if you have high plateau pressures you're kind of like really over distending those alveoli really hitting those alveoli and overstretching them and increasing the risk of trauma to those alveoli so and it's not shown to be beneficial to these patients one of the other downsides though is again this is where you have to meet this kind of like fine line you don't want to give them too much tidal volume because you don't want to fracking super inflate their alveoli and cause bear trauma, but you don't want to give them too little because you know what happens whenever you don't give them enough tidal volume? Imagine being restricted to only breathe a certain volume of air below what you want to breathe. You're only allowed to breathe in 300 cc's of air in that one breath. That is sometimes terrible because sometimes these patients, if they're super acidotic, they want to breathe at a crazy fast rate. Or if you're not giving them enough air, what happens is your CO2 can build up. Because remember, with tidal volumes, amount of air that you breathe in, that's oxygen going into the lungs. But the amount of air that you breathe out is CO2 going out of the lungs. If you're not breathing in a lot and not exhaling a lot, guess what builds up in your blood? CO2. You know what CO2 is going to do to your central nervous system? It's going to say, hey, dude, a lot of CO2 in the blood. I'm getting kind of acidotic here. I think we got to breathe a little bit faster. And then it makes the patient want to breathe faster over the ventilator. And sometimes it requires this heavy amount of sedation and paralytics, unfortunately, which we'll get to. Now, there is a degree that we try to meet like that happy kind of medium there which is will allow for CO2 to be a little bit elevated to where it causes an acidosis, but we don't want it to be too low. We kind of prefer for it to be just around like 7.25. Like that's a, that's a good range. If we, if we get less than 7.25, then we're getting to the point where the patient may be getting a little bit too acidotic and we're increasing their risk of trying to breathe over the vent. But if we can get to like 7.25 at the lowest end, that's an acceptable kind of pH to allow for um, whenever you're giving these low tidal volumes. All right, so that's the tidal volume, which you're controlling with lung protective ventilation. Four to six cc's per kg of ideal body weight. Don't give them too much. You'll over distend them. Don't give them too little. You'll make them acidotic and make them overbreathe the vent. Get them right in that sweet spot where you're giving them just enough of permissive hypercapnia that you're allowing their CO2 to just be high enough and drop their pH. Just don't let it get less than like 7.25 because then they're going to start becoming a little bit more acidotic and trying to breathe over the vent. Now, the next thing that you control when you lung protectively ventilate a patient is PEEP, positive end expiratory pressure. This is basically, think about keeping those alveoli stented open, splinted open, especially at the end of expiration. When you expire, guess what happens? The alveoli want to collapse, especially because they don't got no dang surfactant. That collapsing, they're closed now. When you take a breath, you have to take enough energy and work to open up and breathe air into your lungs and then stent open those alveoli. That's work. That's stress on the body. What we can do is we can keep them open so that the patient doesn't have to work as hard to breathe. And so that's one of the cool things about this is so during inspiration, we open up those collapsed alveoli and during expiration, we keep them open. And that allows for us to push a lot of oxygen into those alveoli and use those alveoli to put oxygen into the blood. So I want you to remember pot peep changes your oxygenation. Okay. Peep changes your oxygenation. Your tidal volume changes your plateau pressures and your CO2. 
Got it? Okay. The third thing that we also control on a patient is FiO2, the fraction of inspired oxygen. So this is how much oxygen we want to give. So we can go all the way from, generally we try to, you know, we can say anywhere from like, you know, like 30% if you really wanted to go that low, all the way up to 100%. And so generally with an FiO2 for these patients, we kind of want to keep it less than 60%, less than or equal to 60%, I'd say would be ideal. As you go up higher and higher and higher on FiO2, you want to make sure that you're not pushing too much oxygen because you can actually cause hyperoxia. And there's been literature that shows that there is no benefit to hyperoxia whatsoever, could actually be worse. So it's actually important to target a specific like O2 saturation for the patient. And sometimes with the severe ARDSs, you can go anywhere from like 85 to 95%. And so whenever you're titrating FiO2, titrate it to the oxygen. So remember how PEEP increases oxygen? FiO2 increases oxygen. So you crank up the FiO2 to try to increase their O2 saturation. You increase their PEEP to increase their O2 saturation. Okay. The last thing here, just to kind of like tell you guys again, we have control tidal volume, we control PEEP, we control FiO2. The next thing here is that you want to understand pressures within the actual like chest whenever you're ventilating a patient. So there's something called plateau pressure and then something called driving pressures. So plateau pressure is basically a measurement of like a lung injury. If your plateau pressures are very, very high, that's telling me that you're overstretching those alveoli, you're causing a lot of barotrauma and, and then subsequently worsening their dang lung injury. And so what we want to do is, is think about this. Plateau pressure increases whenever our tidal volume increases. So if a patient is having high plateau pressures, what's a number? You guys know? It's generally whenever it's greater than or equal to 30. If it's greater than or equal to 30, you got to try to lower their plateau pressure. And the best way to do that is first lower their tidal volume. If the tidal volume doesn't do it, you can then try to lower their PEEP next. If that's enough, if you have enough room in the PEEP, if they're not too hypoxemic, you can lower their PEEP a little bit to lower their plateau pressures. So that's another important thing to consider. Okay. The last thing here is your driving pressure. So driving pressure has actually been shown to help to play a role within reduced mortality if you keep it within the right parameter. And it's basically you're taking the plateau pressure and you're subtracting the peep. So whatever your plateau pressure is, you subtract your peep and that gives you your driving pressure. What we want is we want the driving pressure to be at least less than 15 centimeters of water. If it's higher than 15 centimeters of water, that tells us that we're going to have a potential increased mortality and more lung injury. So I think that's the big things to remember. Now, to really summate this, when we intubate a patient, put them on lung protective ventilation, we control tidal volume, PEEP, FiO2, but we want to maintain our plateau pressures and our driving pressures, less than or equal to 30, less than or equal to 15. Usually in these lung protective ventilations, we use a very specific mode where we control tidal volume, PEEP, FiO2, and then we're monitoring our plateau and driving pressures, and that's called CMV. So that's the most commonly generally like utilized mode in a patient who has as ARDS. Now, that's what we would do if we're trying to maintain the patient. So we would intubate them, start them on these things. Here's the terrible thing. What if it doesn't work? What if it doesn't work? What if I can't ventilate them to the proper goal and I've maximized, I've optimized my tidal volume, I've optimized my PEEP, I've optimized my FiO2, I made sure that my plateau pressure is less than 30, my driving pressure is less than 15 and the patient's still hypoxemic or they're over-breathing the vent and I just can't get them to maintain a good O2 sat. What the heck could I do, Rob? The next thing I could do is I could prone them. This has actually been shown to reduce mortality. And all you do is you flip them over on their stomach. 
Why this happens is that when you're in the supine position, your heart squishes on the actual consolidated lung tissue and you don't get a lot of air into that lung tissue. If you prone them, it pushes the heart anterior and then opens up those posterior dependent areas to better aerate and get more oxygen into them so that you can pour more oxygen to the blood. So it's a pretty cool thing whenever you can do this. I highly suggest I've gotten to do this a couple of times and it's a very beneficial thing for some of these patients who have nasty ARDS and you've maximized um, and optimized their ventilation. So prone positioning, a big one. The other one I've seen, um, we use this a lot as well, is inhaled pulmonary vasodilators. They're actually pretty cool. Um, they're really good at being able to really help hypoxemia. Um, so what you can give them is something like a nitric oxide or epoprostenol, which is like a prostacycline. And what they do is, is you inhale these like gases, they move to the best ventilated alveoli. So the alveoli that aren't collapsed, aren't filled with fluid, aren't filled with consolidation. And they go to those alveoli that are open and working. And then they diffuse across the alveoli into the capillaries and they dilate the actual capillaries and vessels going to those good alveoli. Because if we increase the blood flow to the alveoli, then we can actually have a lot more oxygen going into the bloodstream to those good alveoli. So I've actually seen this really help a lot with oxygenation, just really some tough sometimes to get patients off of this drug because they just have a, they have a significant drop in their O2 sat when you try to titrate them off of it. The other thing here is we actually utilize this a lot is um, sedation and paralytics. Generally, whenever you're putting a patient in lung protective ventilation, you're going to start them on sedation. They're going to have the, 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 the strong desire to breathe over the amount of tidal volume that you're giving them. And that's very difficult to maintain sometimes the four to six cc's per kg of ideal body weight. So sometimes they want to breathe over what you're giving them and you, you can't give them more because you're, we know that increased tidal volumes can cause bear trauma. So what we have to do is we have to shut down their respiratory drive. We have to make sure that even though if they're getting a lot of CO2 stimulating their brainstem to tell them to breathe faster, we shut it down. We don't let them breathe faster. We don't let them breathe deeper. That might sound terrible, but that's how we do it. And so we put them on sedative, sedative medication. So generally things like propofol or midazolam and generally some PRN or sometimes continuous fentanyl drips. Um, so sometimes we'll put them on a propofol infusion or a midazolam infusion. And then plus maybe like opioid boluses, like we'll give fentanyl boluses or we can give a fentanyl infusion. And that's going to be able to work to just really suppress that brainstem and to decrease any respiratory drive so that we can allow for the patients to like complete, completely become synchronous with the ventilator. And they're not trying to breathe and suck more air if they're really hungry for more air and just let the ventilator do the work. Sometimes if you've optimized the sedation, you've optimized the analgesia, you've put on inhaled pulmonary vasodilators, you've even tried proning them. And if that's not working, you can paralyze them. You can literally take away their muscular drive to want to breathe. If they're completely asynchronous, they're constantly bucking the ventilator. They're constantly trying to breathe over the ventilator and it's not helping them. They're actually desatting because they just can't get in sync with the ventilator. You can paralyze the patient. So generally what we'll do is we'll give them kind of like a, a bolus of some type of like neuromuscular blocker. So I, there's a lot of things out there, Vecaronium, um, Sasachicarium. Um, I think, the studies have shown that cisatricurium has been shown to be the more particular one uh, utilized in a lot of the ARDSNET protocols. So cisatricurium is actually going to be able to kind of just blockade and shut down the diaphragm, the intercostal muscles, and so that the muscles aren't working to be able to breathe above what the actual ventilator is trying to deliver. And so this has actually been shown to reduce mortality as well. So I think prone positioning, paralytics, these are the big things that are, and then lung protective ventilation is the big things in ARDS patients. The last thing, it's kind of last ditch effort. Your patient's near death and you don't have any other option for them. You've done everything. You can consider something called ECMO, extracorporeal membrane oxygenation. And basically what you do is, is you're kind of hooking up 
Maybe you have like a big catheter that goes into the inferior vena cava. Then you got another one that maybe goes into another part like the superior vena cava. And you're just kind of running blood through them and through this kind of like out outer part. I guess, I guess you could say like an outer lung. So you have like this outer outside of their body, a lung that you're running blood through and you're oxygenating and then pushing it back into their actual heart. And so the whole goal is that you're basically allowing the lung not to do anything. And you're allowing this machine to be able to breathe for the patient and oxygenate the blood. And so it's kind of like a last ditch effort if the patient is like near death and we don't got anything else to help them with. So that would be kind of the, the end game in these patients. That was a monster for treatment. Holy <laughs> God. You know, wow. it's crazy. We didn't even talk about all the stuff for like COVID too. There's all these things out there for COVID, but I, bet, I, bet. I think we're going to so forgo much. that. Yeah. That'll, that'll, we'll be here for a little bit longer, but yeah, yeah. No, I, I mean, that, that was awesome, Zach. Wow. Really, really interesting stuff. Thanks, man. Yeah. And I, and I thought this was a really cool podcast. I thought it was a topic that, you know, it's relatively common out there in the critical care world and emergency department. So I think it's an important one to really get down and really understand. I think as long as you kind of focus, I'd say more particularly on the diagnosis and treatment, I think that would be the big heavy parts to focus on with the ARDS. Yeah. Completely agreed. And there's another episode, uh, a big mammoth on ARDS, (laughs) but it was a good one. Uh, I think now, Zach, we got to hit the gym, right? Yeah, we got to go get that gym. We got to hit the muscles, baby. It's leg day. It's leg day. Uh, We're trying our best to make time for the gym. We want to try and keep keep in shape and, you know, keep keep our health maintained. So uh, we're hitting the legs today. Yeah, I don't want people to keep telling me that I'm fat. (laughs) (laughs) Stop it. Now, we're trying our best, um, you know, make time for the gym and it's working out great. We're having a lot of fun. But uh, yeah, leg day. We're gonna have we're gonna have a good time. Yeah, but Ninjas, I hope that you guys enjoyed this podcast. I hope it made sense. I hope that you guys had a good time and had a laugh and just were able to relax and learn a little bit about ARDS. But uh, Ninjas, thank you, love you, and as always, until next time.